Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. I trust you're enjoying your new year so far. Uh, Apparently, January the 17th, which is yesterday, is the day where most people uh, fall... fall through on their New Year's resolutions. Uh, If you're going to break it, January the 17th is the day when it most commonly happens. So if you're here this morning and you're feeling a little bit guilty, uh, feeling a little bit discouraged, deflated, we will be available after the service for some counselling and for prayer and encouragement. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it, whatever it was yesterday. Uh, It reminds me, I I saw um, an ad about an ice cream shop which was offering a two-for-one Uh, ditch your New Year resolution ice cream deal in which you could go into this ice cream shop and all you had to say was, I confess I am too weak to keep my resolve. And the deal is yours, a two-for-one ice cream deal. Today, we're not going to be talking about our resolutions, our desires, our visions for this year. We're going to be looking at God's vision God's desire, God's goal. It's an eternal vision. It's an eternal resolution which never gives up, which is for our world and it's for you and me. The beginning of this year, we've started a series in the book of Zechariah and the theme of Zechariah is God's call to us to build his house. And today what we're going to be doing is taking a detour from the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament and we're going to just zoom out, if you like, and look at this theme of what Zechariah is talking about, you know, 3,000 years ago we need to build God's house. We're going to zoom out and see, well, what, what does that mean for us today, God's vision to build his house? What does that mean? We're going to look at the big picture and the New Testament. So what is God's vision for our world? There's many ways to summarize it, but I'm going to summarize it this way this morning, and that is his vision for our world is to fill the earth with his presence. Isaiah 11 verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. God promises one day the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 says the same, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's vision, God's resolution is to fill our planet with God's, pre- God's presence, with his glory. When we come over to Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is talking about God's big picture plan for the whole world. And in this paragraph at the end there in verse 10, he says, as a plan for the fullness of time, that is when time reaches its completion, when history comes to its resolution, what is it? To unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. And then when we come uh, to chapter 4, verse 10 of Ephesians, it says this of Jesus, Jesus is the one who descended, that is, descended into death. He is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. With what goal? With what resolution? What is God's plan? That he might fill all 
things. Jesus' plan, Jesus' resolution is to fill all things. And then finally, when we come to Revelation chapter 5, we see this vision of what the end of time is going to look like. And look at what it says, verse 11. I looked, I heard around the throne, that's around the throne of God, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The throne of God is surrounded by myriads and myriads. You cannot count the number of people and beings who are, who are worshiping God. And then verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The universe is filled with worshipers of God. What is God's plan? It is to fill the earth with his presence. What is his method? What is his strategy? Well, it's similar to McDonald's. What's McDonald's? Goal, McDonald's goal is to fill the earth with the aroma of Big Macs and to entice people into its restaurants. It doesn't do that just by sort of having this mass propaganda of McDonald's ads, although, yes, I, I guess it does sometimes get a bit out of control. It doesn't just bombard uh, different countries with millions of hamburgers, with these mass airdrops of hamburgers into different countries. Now, what does it do to spread McDonald's throughout the earth? It sets up, it reproduces McDonald's restaurants. And out of little local McDonald's restaurants, the aroma of, of fried fat and sugar wafts out down our streets and into our homes and into our cars and they try to entice us in to experience the glory of McDonald's. What's God's strategy? His, his, his resolution is to fill this planet, to fill this earth with his glory and he does that by establishing outposts of his glory manifestations of his glory, where all nations, they can get a whiff of the aroma. And they say, I want that. And they come to see and to taste for themselves. The Old Testament begins, of course, with God's banishment of humanity from his presence. There is a great divide between God and man, and it's like God removes his presence from the earth, but then the rest of the Old Testament story is the systematic slow return of God and his presence and his glory to planet Earth. And so the first prototype is the tabernacle where God comes and a, t a tent is built for God to house his glory. A tent, which they called the tabernacle. There in Exodus 40, the glory of the Lord filled this single tent Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the, t the tabernacle. Then the tent, the tabernacle, gets an upgrade. And by the time of 1 Kings, the tabernacle has become the temple. And later on, of course, that's what Zechariah is calling his people to rebuild. And again, in the days of 1 of, of Kings, the temple is built, a cloud fills the house of the Lord. The priest cannot stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord fills 
the house of the Lord. But of course, Israel, the people of God, amongst whom the temple and the tabernacle is built, they constantly break God's laws and they constantly banish themselves from God's presence. And so eventually the Old Testament ends with the temple being demolished. But God promises at the end of the Old Testament that you haven't seen anything yet. There is a further upgrade coming, which is not just the prototype, the perfect model is coming. Because God's presence sort of came and made its, made its home in the Old Testament. But there was a curtain which guarded the way to God's presence. But then, of course, the, the Old Testament says a, a better model is coming. The perfect model is coming. A better temple is coming. And, of course, we come into the New Testament and God's perfect model arrives. And the temple, of course, is not a tent. God's perfect temple is not made of stones. It's not made of gold or silver. God's perfect temple arrives in the person of Jesus Christ. He is God's ultimate temple. God's presence is in him because he is God, God in the flesh. And so John 1.14, the word, that is Jesus, became flesh, human skin, flesh and blood. He dwelt or he tabernacled. He made his temple amongst us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus did what the Old Testament temples and sacrifices never could do. Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. And of course, the curtain in the temple down the road was opened up, symbolic of the fact that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was opening up the way for God's presence to invade planet Earth in a full and perfect way. And of course, in the rest of the New Testament, God is in the reproduction business. The perfect model has arrived, and now stage two, God is filling the earth with his presence. The doorway for God's presence to enter our world has been opened through Jesus and his perfect sacrifice. And now God fills the earth with his presence as God establishes the church. He indwells us, his church, with the Holy Spirit, and he sends us out throughout the nations of the world, through the communities, through the neighborhoods and the nations, reproducing the presence of God through the Holy Spirit within us. Church is not a service, fundamentally. We often talk, let's go to church, as if church is a service. It's not a service. It's not a building. We sometimes talk about church as being a building. We're building a new church as if it's a building. But of course, a church isn't a building. That's why we don't need stained glass windows in here. We're, we're quite comfortable having a ridiculous looking fan circling ahead of us and a basketball ring over here. It doesn't really bother us, although we're looking forward to going to our new building. But you know, church isn't the building. Church is a people just like God indwelt and God was, God, God was the temple of God in Jesus, the temple of God today on earth is you and me, God's people, God dwelling amongst us. There's various metaphors in the New Testament which are used to describe the church. In Ephesians, we have a few. The first one is the body, the church which is his body in Ephesians 1. Then in chapter 2, we have the church is like a building. 
we are built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is like a body, the church is like a building. What do both bodies and buildings have in common? Well, the place where a person lives. Here you see the body of Philip Wilson, the body, my so-so looks and my figure is where the person, the soul of Philip Wilson dwells. You'll come to my house, you'll knock on the door, that is where my family lives. The body and the building is where someone lives and the church is the body where Christ expresses his life on earth through you and me. And the church is the building you'll find Jesus amongst his people today. And so, God's vision is to fill the earth with his glory. And he does that. He moves forward in his plan by filling his church with his glory, with his presence. By establishing outposts of his church. And so we have in Ephesians 1 verse 23... The church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. God is filling everything and he's doing it by starting by filling you and me. So we come to Ephesians 3 verse 19. Paul prays this beautiful prayer and he ends by saying, Oh, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. God wants to fill you with all of his fullness. And then we come into the practical section of Ephesians and Paul says... Be filled, be filled with the Spirit. You are the place where God's presence is to be made known. The life of Jesus is to be found amongst his people. Now, what does that look like? There's many answers that we could give. Here's a few answers that leap off the page for me in Ephesians, which is, seems to be where we're spending a bit of time this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, I therefore am a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Please live in a way which is consistent with your calling. What's your calling? To be the dwelling place of God. Well, what is, what does it look like to be, cons- to be living in a way which is consistent with the calling of being God's dwelling place. Well, number one, I would say we should be known as people of good works. Paul says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Christians should be known as people who do good. People should look at Christian people and look at our church and say, those people, they do a lot of good. They make things happen. They change our world for good. Number two, Christians should be known as people who have a sense of spiritual power amongst us. If God is present amongst us, then you would think that the almighty creator of the universe should be revealing his presence somehow in his power. And so Paul says, uh, I was given the gift of God's grace by the working of his power. Chapter 3, he says, To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that it should be a common occurrence. Well, he talks about the occasion when non-Christians come to church and they sit down and they just watch what's going on. And by the end of the service, they feel just totally exposed and say, uh, convicted. And they say, God is here. And they fall down and worship God. That should be evident from time to time. That the presence of God, that God is at work, that God is real, that God is doing things. That should be evident if God is amongst us. Number three, we should be known for people who are people of unity and humility. Uh, Beginning of chapter four, Paul says, uh, walk worthy of the calling you've been called with, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. In any family, there are always frustrations, always little rough edges, but the people of God amongst whom the Spirit of God is dwelling should be known as people of patience, people of humility, people who are putting other people first. Similarly, number four, Christians should be known as people of supernatural love. Chapter four, later on, Paul says, let Christians be people who do honest work with our own hands. I find this interesting. Why do we go to work? Well, we go to work to pay the bills. We go to work because it's a good thing to work. We glorify God by by doing good stuff at work. But here's another reason why we go to work. We go to work so that, verse 28, we might have something to share with anyone who's in need. Christians are people who who deliberately uh, uh, put aside money so that they can give to other people who are in need. That's something of the love of God. Later, Paul says, what should we be like? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When people come to church on Sunday, they should sense that there is a real sense of love we have for one another in our congregation. And it shouldn't just be something which happens on Sunday morning, you know, from 10 to 11 or maybe 10 to 11.30 because we had a chat after morning tea. You know, if we really love each other, we should be in each other's lives and sharing and showing love as people who, who, who love one another, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be known as people of supernatural love. We should be known as people of purity and of mind and talk. Paul says, chapter 5, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. People should sense that of something of the holiness of God that there is something different amongst these people, that the God who is true and righteous and pure, He is among these people, and it's marked, it's found in their conversation. Christians should be known as people of spiritual song and conversation. Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to, your, uh, to the Lord with your heart. If God is amongst us, you'd think we'd be having a few songs to sing about it. And not just on Sunday mornings, it's just something which flows out in our conversation and in, 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 from our heart sings a song. Because we've been so blessed and it just flows out in this, this lifestyle of attitude, of praise and thanksgiving and joy. We don't need wine 
to give us the kick of life. Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And look what that will look like. Look Look at what that will do. It will create this just beautiful song which just flows out in your conversation. And finally, Paul says, uh, we should be observing healthy households. And in chapters 5 and 6, Paul gives instructions for what healthy relationships look like between husbands and wives and children and parents, masters and slaves. God's presence is to be seen amongst us. And so, look, there are seven characteristics which I've just sort of brainstormed out of Ephesians. Have a look at those seven. Which of those seven is the Holy Spirit giving you a bit of a poke in your heart about today? Just have a look at it and think about that for a few seconds. Which of those seven is the Holy Spirit poking your heart about today? That God wants to reveal himself in your life. Which of those ones? This is what the building of God's house looks like. We're starting a series, well, we've already started it. Uh, We've advertised in the newsletter, Building God's House, the Work of Ministry in the 21st Century. We're going to be talking in different aspects about uh, what it is that God calls us to be doing to serve Him as His people in the 21st century, uh, to build God's house. And I guess the point which I really just want to lay before you this morning is I mean, we will be talking about the different roles which people have to play, the different gifts, the different programs, the different ministries, organizational matters. That all comes into it. But it's like the trellis to the vine. If you're going to grow a vine, it's so helpful to have a trellis which the vine can grow. You need structure. But of course, you, you haven't done the job if all you've got is a trellis and You haven't been looking after the vine. The vine is the all-important thing, and this is what a healthy vine looks like. This is the end result. These are the marks that God is amongst his people. It's not just activity which we need to be thinking about, what we need to be doing. We need God to be coming and creating his own healthy fruit, his life amongst us. I imagine some people could... Think, could just hear all this talk, uh, maybe you're thinking like this today, um, and just be a little bit cynical. Um, people who are cynical of Christianity, they might think, hear about all of this and say, really, I mean, the idea of God dwelling in you, God dwelling in a church, the dwelling place of God, I mean, it's, it sounds very nice, sounds very romantic, very idealistic, but is that really how you would describe yourself, God living in you? I mean, if you're honest, aren't many churches just little more than a social club? They do, a little, they, you know, they do some good for the community here and there. But, you know, to, 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 say, to claim that you've got God amongst you, isn't that a bit of a massive claim? Overstatement? A bit over the top? Well, if that's what you're thinking, I would say this. Number one, I would say, well, actually, sometimes it really does look like that. As in, it really does look like that God is amongst his church sometimes. You know the reason why the church in the early centuries 
took over, grew and grew and grew and took over the whole Roman Empire. Well, it didn't do it by violence. It didn't do it by some massive marketing and propaganda program. It did it because of the effect history tells us of the sheer love which was present in the lives of individual Christians as they went around their daily life. And it transformed the Roman Empire as they looked after homeless people, as they adopted babies which everyone else was throwing away, as they cared for people who were beset by plagues and they cared for them and, and went into their homes and looked after them when everybody left and ran off and left them to die. Supernatural love. They're losing their own life in the process. Lives of purity and joy. And we have emperors writing, saying, you know what, to stop the Christian church, we need to start copying them because we can't stop them. They are just so powerful. We need to start learning from their methods. Now, if you want to see that sort of thing happening today, you can go to places today, the revival taking place in Mozambique, revival taking place in China, where communities are being turned upside down and transformed by the presence of God. It does happen where you can look at some cases of the church today and you can just say, it is God amazingly at work. The other thing I'd say is this. What is an atheist alternative? What is your alternative you're going to give me? I read a post on the internet the other day. Uh, it was from an atheist responding to the French tragedy giving advice on how to have a religion. If you must have a religion, please obey these rules. And they give, it was giving conditions in which it's okay to be, religion, to, to be religious. And they asked this question, does your religion help you to cope with the fact that you are a bag of meat sitting on a rock in outer space and that someday you will die and you are completely helpless, powerless and insignificant in the wake of this beautiful cosmic thing we called existence. If so, excellent. Carry on with it. See what they're saying? They're saying, if your religion is going to make you feel better about the fact that the reality is that you are just a bag of meat sitting on a rock with no hope, waiting for the day you cease to exist... If it makes you feel better, then okay, you can be religious. The famous atheist Bertrand Russell had a similar thing to say. He said, humans are a tiny lump of impure carbon and water crawling impotently on a small and unimportant planet. See, that is what we are according to atheism. But, you know, if Christianity is true, friends, we are much, much more we are the vessel made for the presence of God. We are made for God to dwell amongst. And that is why we find ourselves having such a passion for things like love and joy and truth and righteousness and peace. And atheism trivializes all those things and just says it's just a chemical illusion in your brain that thinks that we should worry about being loving and righteous and truthful and just. But the Christian worldview says, no, the reason why you have such a passion to be people of love, people of truth, 
people of justice, it's because God has made you to dwell in you. You know, being a Christian is such a privilege because we were made for God to dwell amongst us and to fill our lives and then to fill our community. And, you know, sometimes I look at things, I look at my life, I look at churches, and I feel a bit cynical too. And I see human failure and I see messiness of life and I don't see much of the presence of God, if I'm to be honest. It seems that God is absent. But, you know, even for me in those times, I'm still glad I'm a Christian. I'm not a Christian just because I love doing church stuff on Sunday mornings, you know, just love doing the church routine. That's not really why I, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because I'm hungry to know more of God's presence, to know more of God's love in my life, know more of God's joy and peace and righteousness and freedom and truth, to know more of God, Jesus coming and filling my life. And I'd say to you, can you tell me anything that is a better thing to live for than that? To know God's Holy Spirit come and live within you and change you from the inside out. So our invitation, friends, in this series is won't you come and join us in the building of God's house, the building of the place where God comes and dwells amongst and brings his glorious presence, the amazing reality of knowing the filling of our, our awesome creator and saviour of the universe, filling us and changing us, bringing his glory amongst us. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this awesome concept we've talked about this morning, that you want to fill the earth with your glory, and you want to do that by filling us, your people, with your glory, filling us with your presence, and then out of that, radiating that presence and multiplying that presence over and over again. Father, we just want to be real with you this morning and confess that often our lives are so full of dirt and mess and failure. We shake our heads and say, how can that be true in my life? But we thank you, Father, that Jesus Christ has died for us. He's made the one perfect sacrifice by which all of our sins are cast away. We've been made clean by the blood of Jesus, and now the Holy Spirit can come and live amongst us and fill us. And so, Lord, we just want to invite you to do that in a deeper and deeper way today. I pray for any here to, this morning who don't know you, who may not be Christians, I pray that, Lord, help them today to take that first step and just to say, Lord, come and fill me, come and enter my life. I turn from my sin. I want you in my life from now on because Jesus has died for me and he's the Lord. And Lord, we just, as a congregation of you, we say, Lord, come, come and fill us afresh this year. Fill us more and more with your glory and your grace. We look to you for this, Father. Amen.